Father, it has been a blessed week, and I thank you for the way that you have dealt with us through the blessing of fellowship, the um, convicting of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for lifting our hearts with rejoicing and music and just seeing the magnificent goodness of God. As we look at this topic today, Father, I again ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, and, and Lord, break to us all the bread of life. I, I learned so much in sharing these, putting them together, and I thank you for the reminders you've given me this week. You know, Lord, how weak our, our grip on you is. And I ask that you would take your great big strong hand and just enclose it over ours and hold us tight to your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you like habits? Anyone here that like habits? Got a few. Good. Every hand ought to have been up. Can you imagine what life would be like without habits? It would be. There would be a lot of turmoil. Let me just run through some characteristic of habits, because habits are your friends. They're not an enemy. They're a friend. Habits are a wonderful gift that God has given to us so that we don't have to give conscious thought to every action every time. How many of you remember way back when, when you were learning how to tie your shoe. <laughs> that, took, that took thought, right? How many of you don't even think about tying your shoe now? You're thinking about a dozen other things while you do it. Yes. So habits are a marvelous gift that God has given us so we don't have to give conscious thought to everything we do every time we do it. Habits are learned behavior that become second nature to us through continual practice. I like this. Because when something becomes second nature, we do it without even thinking, right? It just becomes a part of us. So that's also a good thing. Habits also tell us, because they're learned behaviors, that just as we are capable of learning negative behaviors, guess what? We're capable of learning positive ones, right? So it's not like you have to learn a whole new skill set. You already have it. It's just which side of that fence you want to learn it on. And number four, we cannot avoid habitual living. So just accept it. That's the way God made us. We can't avoid it. And the last one, you might have noticed this one too, changing habits does not come easy for most of us, right? That's what we're going to be dealing with. How many have been frustrated by failed attempts to change some bad habit? We're in 
good company here. You know, we make those resolutions to do things better, and for a time, it seems to be working better, but then we find ourselves back in that old rut again. And that can be discouraging. Some people, they go over that over and over again, you know, good intentions, good struggle, and pretty soon they find themselves back there over and over again. And they come to a couple different conclusions that are not good. And if anyone finds yourself with these conclusions, I want you to erase them, all right? Number one, some conclude that it's not God's timing for them to change, and they'll just have to wait until he does something to take the bad habit away. Anyone ever felt that way besides me? You know, you just say, well, God, I guess, I guess you're just not ready for me to change. I love that excuse. You know, it's all his fault, and so I can continue enjoying my bad habit. But that's all it is. It's an excuse. Others, um, they say, well... It's impossible for me to change. I guess this is just the way I am. And I just need to accept who I am. Either one is a ditch on one side of the road or the other. And don't fall into those two ditches. It is possible for you to change. And when does God want us to change? Now. He says, today. If you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of your salvation. I have come to set my people free. There are two major hindrances to changing a habit. Number one is lack of real change, and number two is lack of perseverance. How long did it take you to learn how to tie your shoe without giving it any thought? It took a while, right? Perseverance. Now, what do I mean by real change? What, what is real change? Let me illustrate it by a very corny child's joke, okay? I'm not expecting any laughter. This is so corny, but it makes the point. When is a door not a door? You're right. You had a corny joke teller as well, didn't you? When it's a jar. Okay, you can laugh now. Now, I don't tell this joke to be funny because it, it's not, but it does give a concrete example of change. Let's ask that question again. When is a door not a door? We're going to make a slight modification here. Just remember the first answer. When a door is not a door is when it's a jar, right? So when is a door not a jar? Uh, not a door. When it becomes something else. You got that? When it becomes something else. This is the fundamental principle of biblical change when it comes to habits. If we miss this, our efforts to change will only produce temporary results, and we'll find ourselves back as a door again. So, a change of activity is not the same as a change of a person, nor is it even a change of desire. 
right? Real change only takes place when there has been a change in the way we think about the activity. And so that's where we want to focus today is on the thought process, changing our thinking. Let's go back to the question, when is a blank not a blank? And fill in those blanks with whatever problem you might be struggling with. For example, when is a liar not a liar? When is a thief not a thief? When is a compulsive eater no longer a compulsive eater? And you could add whatever else you wanted. Okay? How would you answer that? <laughs> You're right. Let's, um, if a liar stopped lying or a thief stopped stealing, would they be something else? Not necessarily. There's no assurance whatsoever that a thief who is not stealing has stopped being a thief. All the cessation of stealing means is that at the present time he's not stealing. Perhaps it's not wise for him to be stealing right now because the police are too close on his trail. Right? Perhaps He's made a good resolution to stop stealing. But what will he find himself doing under economic pressure is a totally different matter, right? So just because you stop the behavior doesn't mean that you're something else yet. There could be various reasons for stopping that behavior. In other words... Since thieves do not always steal and liars do not always lie and compulsive eaters are not always eating, a cessation of these activities is no indication that there has been a permanent change. How many of us can testify to that personally? Yes. Some of us would go for months, perhaps, and some of us that have harder, stiffer backbones might go even further than that, but sooner or later... If you're like I am, you find yourself back in the ditch, right? So what is the right answer to the question, when is a thief not a thief? When he becomes something else, an honest man. And you could apply that to the other examples. The Bible speaks of this need of change in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 32. This I say, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. And notice the characteristics of how Gentiles walk. The first one is what? In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Verses 17 through 19. So as you look at that description of how Gentiles walk, 
we could say that the Gentile life is characterized by two basic things. Ignorance of the things of God and an orientation toward desire or feeling instead of duty or responsibility. You see that in there? Feeling-oriented, desire-oriented, instead of duty-oriented. On the other hand, the way of life for the believer is truth-oriented, as Ephesians 4, 20-24 puts it. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as a truth is in Jesus, that you put off, notice that term, concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you may what? Put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Change is a two-factor process, and these two factors have to be in place in order for change to be genuine. What are those two factors? You put off and you put on. That's right. Putting off will not be permanent without a putting on. And a putting on will be hypocritical as well as temporary without the putting off. Does that make sense? Feel free to raise your hand if you have any questions or just call them out. Jesus spoke of the result of, of one who puts off the old without putting on the new. You know what he had to say about him? You find it in Mark or Luke 11. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man... He goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. What does he say? I'm going to return to my house from which I came, and when he comes, what does, condition does he find the house in? Man, it's swept out. It's put in order. Here's a soul that, that used to be a cluttered housekeeper, perhaps, and he threw the demon of clutter out, and, and he cleaned everything up. And that spirit comes back, and what does he find? An empty house. What does he do then? He goes out and says, hey, buddies, I found a nice place for us to hang out. And he gets seven of his buddies, and it says, they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is what? Worse than the first. What was the problem of this man? He didn't what? He didn't put on. He was satisfied just to put off. You see that? How many of us have experienced this? We've put off, but we didn't replace it. And we find ourselves in worse condition than before, right? And then we get discouraged and we think, I've committed the unpardonable, God's not with me, and, you know, woe is me. I guess I'd better just give up. Why try? I, I told you a little bit my experience with that years ago. And it was the same reason. I was trying to, to put on all kinds of right behavior. God ordained things, but it didn't last. You know why? 
because I hadn't put off the old. You were right. Too often we focus on getting the things we shouldn't be doing out of our lives, but we don't spend very much time filling the void with the things we should be doing. God tells us we need to be renewed. I'll put this in the spirit of our mind. Now that was in Ephesians. And put on that new man created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now Ephesians chapter 4, 25 through 32, gives us a list of very specific put off, put on um, things that we should practice. And I'm just going to list them by the nugget here instead of quoting the whole verse, but you can go home and look at this. Verse 25, he says, put off lying. What do we replace it with? Telling the truth. Verse 26, put off anger. What do we replace that with? Resolve problems daily. Don't let that resentment build up. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. So deal with it. And verse 28, we are to put off stealing. What are we to put on? Get a job. For what reason? It, it does say, find something useful to do with your hands, you know. But do you know why it says to do that? So that we have something to share with others. Not just so I can take care of myself. That's still selfishness, isn't it? The same principle behind stealing. I'm only looking after myself. So put off stealing and get a job so that you have things to share with others. Verse 29, put off corrupt talk and replace it with what? Words of edification that build up. Put off corrupt communication. But only what is helpful for building others up that it may benefit those who listen. Did you catch that definition of corrupt communication? Didn't say anything about swearing, did it? Anything that does not edify those who listen or build up those who listen, according to the Bible, is corrupt communication. It might be true. Did you hear what I heard about Doug Batchelor? It is true. But if it's not edifying or building up, what kind of talk is it? Corrupt communication. Spend some time on verse 29 in Ephesians. And then it says, put off bitterness, wrath, and anger and replace it with kindness, tenderness, forgiveness. Now, Ephesians 4 here has a neat little list where they're very close together, put off, put on. But that's not the only place. We find the same put off, put on counsel in other places of the Bible. Start reading your Bible with that concepts, looking at what we get rid of, what we replace it. It doesn't always say put off, but it's still there. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not return evil for evil. That's what we should get rid of. And put on what? But bless those who revile you. That's not going to be the easiest habit that you'll establish. But I will guarantee you probably have a lot of opportunity to practice it if you wanted to I mean, establish it, right? Bless those. Romans 
Chapter 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil. That's the put off. What do we put on? Overcome evil with good. You'll have plenty of practice or opportunity to practice that one too. 3 John 11. Don't imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. The Bible is full of counsel like this that we can put off things that we should put on, not always in the same verse or the same passage, but as you read it, you will find what God says, I don't really want you to do that, let's do this instead. Now, changing habits, this is the bad news, takes work. What did it take to establish the habit? Work. You're going to have to use some work to change it. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says, Exercise yourselves toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. How many of you have a regular exercise program? How many wish you had a regular exercise program? <laughs> all right. Why don't you? I mean, if you wish it, why don't you? It takes work. Does it feel good? Not at the beginning it doesn't feel good. I um, have always been a pretty active person, and I, I thought I was in pretty good shape and could hold my own and whatnot, and I... I um, was studying with a guy who had a dog in an upstairs apartment. Uh, it was a Akita border collie mix, the best we could come up with, and the poor dog didn't get any out exercise and was rarely taken out of the apartment. It was just a corner of the living room was his bathroom, and it needed changed. And so I adopted the dog. And because it's a dog that needs exercise, I said, okay, let's go running. And I lived halfway I was out in the country where you go around the block and you've gone four miles. And so I lived in the middle. And I said, okay, this won't be hard. You know, get up and take him for a jog in the morning. I found myself looking forward to the stop sign at the half mile mark <laughs> more than I thought I would. And that was a wake up call. I says, man, you need to get yourself in shape. So I started, that dog started me, because he liked those runs, and we began to run. And then it was, you know, two miles, and then it was around the block, and I thought, wow, that about killed me. But after that, the block wasn't enough, and it was two blocks. And, you know, then my daughter called and says, hey, Dad, you want to do a half marathon with me? She was teaching over out of Chicago, and I said, half marathon, how long's that? And, you know... 13 miles, and I said, oh, okay, I'll train for you, you know, and, and you know, if I don't go jogging in the morning, I miss it. Now, it's best about 6 o'clock. Sun's coming up, or it's still dark, not much traffic, and it's just cool, the birds are singing, you get, you get God's symphony, you know, wherever you go. And so, uh, that, that helped me understand habits. It's not easy to get started, but once you do, you miss it. And so, 
Exercise yourself. Yes, it's not fun, but once you establish that new routine, it becomes routine, second nature. So I, I have settled in. I don't have dogs anymore. Had one that we probably ran 2,500 miles together over the five years, do about 20 miles a week, and she just loved it. Started running with me when she was about five or seven months old, and little border collie came out of the Akita, uh, Akita uh, border collie mix dad. But, you know, even without the dog, you got to get out there. It's just not the same. I've missed it this week at camp meeting because there's no time to get out there, and I'm with J2, and we're running back and forth across the field, but I found out that kind of running is totally different. <laughs> I'm feeling it in a few spots that I didn't think I would after, you know, regular jogging, but yeah, exercise. Prepare your mind for action, because that's what it's going to take. Two things are necessary for us to be obedient to that verse there in 1 Timothy. The first one is learning the truth of God. We need to get that down before we start exercising. Otherwise, we might be doing the wrong thing, right? So learn what God wants us to do. And where's the best place to go to learn the truth of God? His Word, all Scripture written by the inspiration of God, and it is profitable for what? Doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be what? Complete. Anyone interested in that one? What's the next one? Complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Can you imagine your life being like that, complete, thoroughly equipped, throw at me whatever you want. Wouldn't that be marvelous? That's what God wants us to be. Now, the second thing is what? Exercise or training. That's putting the knowledge we've received into practice so it builds spiritual muscle. It becomes a part of our everyday routine. Now, between these two, which is the hardest part? The second, you know, Timothy, 2 Timothy tells us that. Chapter 3 says, There will be perilous times in the last days, right? Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, and it goes on, whole list of things. Unholy, without self-control. It's the next verse, verse 7. That is important. They have a form of godliness. They don't know the power of it. Why? They are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Doesn't that describe us as Adventists many times? Always learning. And I'm, I, this is not a criticism, it's an appeal. You've had a week of feasting here at camp meeting. And you could buy all the CDs and you could listen to them over and over again 
And it won't do you a whole lot of good unless you get into the gym and start training and exercising. Okay? You've been at camp meeting before, and it was a mountaintop experience. And about three weeks later, back home, where were you? Back down in the valley. Right? What was the problem? You didn't go to the gym. You didn't get your weights and start working out. The spiritual uh, gym, I hope you understand. Our problem, as Seventh-day Adventists especially, our problem is not a lack of knowledge. We know so much more than almost anyone else out there of the Bible. That's not our problem. It's a lack of discipline, a lack of exercise. And there's just no simple, easy way to godliness. We must train ourselves to godliness. More uh, knowledge of truth won't do us any good if we are not exercising the knowledge we have already received. Does that make sense? Paul uses the Olympic Games as an example of how we ought to train ourselves. And I'll warn you, this is not my favorite verse, but misery loves company. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But how many receive the prize? One receives the prize. So run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize, how many? How many of you here are competing for a prize? I hope so. Everyone who competes for the prize is what? Temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, a laurel wreath that would be faded before long. But Paul says, we do it for what? An imperishable crown. Who has the greater motivation to run, the Olympian or the Christian? The Christian has the greater motivation... There's more at stake for us. goes on, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Well, I'll try this and I'll try that. Well, I didn't really get into that and I'm not that. And, and this one didn't seem to work. No. I run not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become what? I can't be. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I am part of the remnant church. I'm even a pastor in that remnant church. How could I be disqualified? Because I'm not exercising. I may spend all my time in my study preparing marvelous messages to stir the hearts of the saints and make them think I'm such a great preacher, but if I'm not exercising what I am learning, would I be disqualified for the prize? Yeah. We need to take this seriously. Disciplined living requires four things. A knowledge of God's standard of righteousness, self-examination to see if we're in harmony with that standard. We don't like that. It's good to get a buddy with you. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And daily denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, as Titus 
2 says, how often? Daily. And number four, practice in following Jesus in new ways of godly living. Is it always safe to follow Jesus? Is following Jesus the same thing as having faith in Jesus? If it's genuine faith, yes. But so often we say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I've given my life to Him. But have I if I'm not walking in His example? I really don't have faith in Him. I'm fooling myself. So this, we need these four things in place. There are seven elements of biblical change that I'm going to run through with you on. Number one, becoming aware of the problem. This might be the most difficult step. You know why? Because it forces us to take a good look at ourselves and we don't always like what we see. But we must see the problem for what it is if we're going to be successful in overcoming it. Any excusing, well, it's just a little thing, well, I don't do it very often, is, is not going to be helpful. Pride is the biggest hindrance at this point. How many of you like to be reminded of how often you do a sinful behavior? <laughs> Why not? Think about this. Why wouldn't you like to be reminded at how often you do a sinful behavior? Because what? It annoys you because of guilt. What's the real reason? What's that? Yeah, I'm comfortable with where I'm at. I may know that where I'm at's not right. That's the guilt. Thus the irritation when someone reminds me. But the reason is I really like where I'm at. And I have convinced myself it's not such a big issue. Right? How many of us should like being reminded how often or the frequency of our sin problem? We ought to say thank you. Right? So pride is a big issue here, and we need someone outside to tell us why. Because it's a habit, and what is a habit? Something you do without thinking. So of course others are going to notice it more than you, because you're not even thinking about it. It's just second nature. You need someone that notices it to remind you. So if we're going to be successful in changing a habit, it's important to become fully aware of the nature and the frequency of the problem and the occasions that trigger it. I think this is one reason why God created marriage. And you know what? Here's a way, if you don't want someone always following you month in, month out, reminding you, then get serious and give somebody who's going to be honest with you, who knows you well, not a distant friend in another city, someone closer to home, a husband, a wife, a child, they'll be brutally honest with you. And you say, for the next two weeks, 
I want you to let me know every time I say or do whatever it is that you're wanting to change. Two weeks. Have it open hunting season. Two weeks. Then you know there's an end, right? And you just carry around a little piece of paper morning, afternoon, evening. You write down how frequently this comes up. You think that would be helpful? After you got it in your hands, maybe you wouldn't like the process of getting it. But do you see what we're doing here? I mean, if you're going to go into training, if, if someone wants to run a half K with me, I mean a half K, half marathon with me, half K, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, half marathon with me, what are you going to do? Just show up the day and say, let's go? If I was your trainer, what would you want me to do? We'd have to spend some time together. We'd have to sh identify the strengths, the weaknesses, right? So this is the same thing God tells us to do in our lives. Train yourself to godliness. Second one is discovering biblical alternatives. After identifying the habit that needs changed, go to the Word and find biblical behavior to replace the bad habit with. That's the put-off, the put-on concept. There was a pastor I, I heard about. He was convicted because when something wasn't going right or the way he wanted, he'd say, oh, great, you know. And he became convicted that that was a form of complaining against God for what he allowed to happen. Was he right? Yes, he was. And so he went to some exercising to change that. And, you know, we can be pretty creative. He, he knew from Scripture that God calls us to give thanks. How often? In all things. So the oh great wasn't really matching up to that. You know what he did? He simply added three words. He'd say, oh great is thy faithfulness. And whenever those words came out of his mouth, he had them registered, oh great, and he had come up with this. After a while, it wasn't just a cover-up for a slip. It was an expression of gratitude. Oh, great is your faithfulness, Lord. And here's an opportunity to see it at work again. Sometimes it can be just simple little things like that. Number three, structuring for change. When we pray for change of some sinful habit in our lives, we need to help answer that prayer, true or false. Yes, we've got to direct our faith into works that are consistent with our prayer and structure our life, our activities, our associates, our friends, our behavior, or toward the, the behavior that we want to put on. Romans 13.4 speaks to this. Put on what? The Lord Jesus Christ. For what reason and how? Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. What does that mean? Don't plan on failing. Make no provision. Make sure that you have ordered your surroundings so that it's harder to find access to whatever it is that you're trying to overcome. 
Structuring for change will often include changing your friends. What does the Bible say? By beholding we become changed. We ought to surround ourselves with people who are what we want to become. 1 Corinthians chapter 15.33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company does what? It corrupts good character. We're going to have to structure for change. If it's a bad temper, anger issues that you have, and you structure for change, don't hang around with others who have a similar problem. Proverbs 22, 24 and 5 says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go. Why? Lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your own soul. There may be some people in your life that you're going to have to say, you know, I'd like to just put our friendship on hold for about two months. I'm working on an issue. And I'm no good for you during this time, and you're not any good for me either. But let's reconnect until that change can take place. Structure for change. Psalms 101 is also a great verse to ponder. I will walk in my house with a perfect heart. Now, I can't walk in the world and arrange everything, but in my house I can. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It will not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. My eyes will be on who? The faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way... He shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. How many of you think that's a pretty good psalm? I'm going to start stepping on toes for a moment, okay? We let a lot of evil people dwell continually in our homes through the television and internet. But because they're not real, we call it entertainment, a way to relax and unwind. This goes back to the conscience issue. You see, they're all connected here. We cannot follow Psalms 101 and be a subscriber to cable. Or if you live in an area where you don't need cable. I'm grateful I grew up in a home without a television. You don't have to have a television now, though. With Internet, you have anything you want. But don't expect to change bad habits into good habits if it's the wicked who are ministering to you. My eyes shall be on who? The faithful. Well, there's some Christians in Hollywood. (laughs) We're talking about faithful. 
right? Give that some serious thought. We wonder that with our kids. You know, in J2, I am just shocked at all these kids that have their own iPhones and anything. All these computer games. All this stuff. If we, if we really want to run that race in a way that will gain the prize, friends, we could trim off a lot of dead weight in our lives if we're serious. You won't be running very well if you don't trim off that dead weight. Structuring your life for change is, is a very important step. I heard of a man once who was addicted to donuts and cake. And every morning on his way to work, he drove by his favorite donut shop, and he would pull in, and he would order some donuts or some pastries. And he was very generous. It just wasn't for his lunch. He would take several boxes and bring them to the office and, and share them with his co-workers, though he did make sure to get more than his share. Well, one day he decided he needed to break this habit and lose some weight, so he announced to his co-workers when he arrived one morning that uh, he was laying off donuts. After this morning, won't be any donuts, not from me. And it was a major battle for him because he had done this for years. He even went so far structuring for change that he mapped out a different route to work so he wouldn't have to drive by the donut shop, even though it took him further around to work. And everything was going fine for a month or so. His uh, co-workers noticed he was dropping a little weight, and that encouraged him, and they encouraged him. But imagine their surprise when one morning he showed up at work with an armful of donuts. They were surprised, and they said, well, what, what happened? And he says, well, I decided, it's been a while, I decided I'd drive my old route to work. And as I came to the donut shop, I prayed, Lord, if you want me to have some donuts today, let the parking spot right in front of the door be open. And he says, you know what? On the eighth time around the block, it was. <laughs> now, was he structuring for change? No. Anyone identify with our donut man? Yeah. Lord, if you want me to, you know. Structure for change. Number four, breaking the earliest link in the chain of sin. When we think of changing a habit, we often think in terms of full-blown results of the habit instead of the smaller steps that lead to those results, right? And that can be overwhelming when we try to, you know, eat the whole pie at once. So... Here's what we need to do. Just as James chapter 1 says, notice the progression here that takes place in James 1, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by what? His own desires, and he's enticed. And then when desire has conceived, you've started spending time with it. Conception is a pregnancy term, that desire conceives. And it gives birth to what? To sin. How long does it take to give birth to sin? Well, if we're going to use the conception model that James uses, 
You say, well, nine months. There are some that conceive real quick. There are some that may not conceive for years. You ever heard of a midlife crisis? Where do those come from? People always dream, someday I'm going to have. Someday I want. And that has conceived that desire, and it may take a long time. But it will give birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Where is the easiest place to stop that reaction? Right there at the beginning, right? Resistance at the point of temptation leads to rejection of the sinful course of action. Did you catch that? Above all else, guard your thoughts, your heart. Out of it are the issues of life. So resistance at the point of temptation, when I'm tempted before the desire has conceived, that will lead to a rejection of the sinful course of action. Let me um, give you an example here of a husband and wife. Try real hard to follow this when it doesn't happen very often, okay? The husband makes an unkind remark to his wife. The wife reacts, how? With a remark that's even more cutting. And that leads to what? The husband responding with a harsher comment. And each adds fuel to the other as the whole thing deteriorates and the gap widens between them. Can you really imagine that situation with me? And then it plunges into hopelessness. Where is the easiest point of resistance? With the first unkind remark. Should be met with biblical action rather than sinful reaction. Okay? It's much harder to stop this conversation at the third or fourth exchange, isn't it? What scriptures might be helpful for us in stopping this decline? What could we put on and exercise with that would stop this? Can you think of any? Ah, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15, verse 1. What's another one? Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. If we go to work, and I'll guarantee all of us will have plenty of opportunity before the weekend is over to start exercising on this one, right? It's a frequent one, but this is an example of exercising. But you have to identify not only the problem, identify the Scripture, hide God's Word in your heart. What does Psalms 119 Verse 9 and 11 say, how can, a, how can a young man, how can an old man, a young woman, young man, uh, older woman keep their way pure? By living according to your word, right? Verse 11, your word have I hid where? In my heart. For what reason? That I might not quarrel with my husband, my wife, or sin against you. That's right. Number five. Getting help from others. Because habits are things we do without conscious thought, how many of you find that the behavior takes place before you're even aware of it? 
How many times has that happened to us? And this is where we need someone who is thinking to point out what we do when we're not. A good friend. As adults, we struggle with this one because we don't like to be held accountable for our negative behavior. We think, well, I'm old enough. I'm not a child. I don't need someone telling me what to do or reminding me of what to do. That's pride speaking. If we do those things without thinking, how can we bring them to conscious thought before we do them without the help of others? Or even when we do them? This is key, an accountability partner. Friends, those who won't humble themselves and accept help from others usually fail in making any lasting change to bad habits. You just start looking around on that. Start asking. Do some surveys, and you'll find those who are too proud to take this step don't get very far, very long. Mary had a bad habit of interrupting her husband whenever he was talking on the phone. She wanted to break the habit because it was a source of frequent quarrels between them, but she knew she needed some outside help because she found herself interrupting before she even thought of doing it. It had just become second nature. So who would be best to ask in a situation like that? Her husband. She asked him to help her come up with something that would remind her not to do this. And so husbands, listen up. This was a pretty creative guy. He made a little sign that he kept in his desk drawer near the phone. And whenever he was using the phone, he set it on his desk where Mary would see it. And it simply said, please do not interrupt. Remember, honey, you're working on this problem. Thanks. <laughs> Is that offensive? No. Not if Mary wants to change, right? That's right. And so, guys and gals, when someone asks you, don't pull out the sledgehammer. That's not always necessary. A little card, a little note or something written. I mean, that, that written statement doesn't have any verbal tone to it, does it? <laughs> so if we spoke it, we could say... Please don't interrupt, honey. Remember you're working on this. Now that's, that's not going to help. So be creative in some of these things. It wasn't long before Mary had overcome her habit. Cooperation on the part of her husband had in a few weeks enabled her to stop a habit that had been a source of irritation between them for a long time. Number six, stress the whole relationship with Christ. What do I mean by that? Our motivation for changing bad habits is not to get something we want, but to glorify God in the life. Let that sink in. I shouldn't quit smoking because I don't want to get cancer. I shouldn't stop arguing with my wife because I want more peace in the home. I shouldn't control my diet because I don't want to get obese or contract some disease. 
Whether I experience these side effects or not is not the issue. I should do those things for what reason? To honor God and represent Him more fully to those around me. So stress the whole relationship with God. And that relationship includes the regular discipline of Bible study, of prayer, of fellowship, of ministry in the church. These things are essential. Get yourself involved in these things and doing it for the glory of God. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all for what? So that you can live 10 years longer as an Adventist than the average population? No, for the glory of God. And finally, number seven, practice the new pattern. Patterns do not develop automatically. Have you discovered that one? They become a part of our life through practice. We live in an age where we want everything instantly. You can make minute rice. You can have instant pudding, instant mashed potatoes, but you cannot make instant godliness. That's done the old-fashioned way. We must discipline ourselves to be godly, but don't become discouraged because it takes a little longer than your minute rice. When our lives are oriented toward godliness, everything will revolve around that goal. It's constantly on our mind. And so it's, we're aware of it, and it will build, and sometimes it builds without us even noticing it. How many of you have had someone you know, come up to you, a friend, and say, you know, I've, I've noticed you've changed over the last few months. I don't know what it is, but I like what I see. Have you ever had someone say that? I mean, you may not have seen it yet because you're still aware of how frequently you still do it, but they don't see it as frequently as it used to be. So allow that growing in grace and knowledge. Keep your eyes on the prize and run in such a way as to get the prize. I'm going to close with an example, a true-to-life example that kind of summarizes all these steps. Almost as soon as he began to drive, Bill developed a hatred for traffic lights. He enjoyed driving on the open roads out in the country, but whenever he drove in town, he would experience tension, even headaches, he developed the habit of trying to beat the red lights. And whenever he failed, he would sit there impatiently gripping the steering wheel, rocking the car back and forth, like, hurry up, let's get going. And then he even got to the point of talking to the lights, telling them off for not cooperating with him and keeping green or yellow just a little longer. If the driver in front of him did not immediately respond to the green light? Well, let's just say you didn't want to be that driver in front of Bill. He would make his disgust known for blocks, honking on the horn or yelling at the guy. He had a problem. In time, he so learned to hate traffic lights that it didn't matter whether they were red or green, he hated them anyway. He began to uh, get tense and angry whenever driving in an area that had them. And Bill became more aware of the intensity of the problem when he moved from the country because of job to an urban area. Driving became distasteful. The tension, the headaches were becoming daily occurrences. 
He was arriving at work nervous, tense. When he got home, he was irritable, upset. And this had an impact on his relationship with families, co-workers. This had become a deeply ingrained habit of years of practice. So finally, he sought help. And in about five weeks, he had not only conquered the problem, but he had come to the point where he enjoyed driving in traffic and actually looked forward to red traffic lights. How long did it take? Five weeks. So I'm sharing this story because it's encouraging. Can we survive something, you know, hang on for five weeks? How in the world did he do it? Number one, he determined to change because he knew his attitudes and behaviors were unbecoming as a Christian. The motivation due all to the glory of God. Number two, he was repentant over the problem, which made him willing to change. No excuses. He recognized it, acknowledged it, repented. Number three, his friend or counselor encouraged him not only to stop his impatience, but also to use stoplights as a, for a good purpose. Instead of them considering them barriers, they asked God to turn them into blessings. And number four, rather than becoming tense over each red light, he determined to look on them as relaxation breaks in his driving and to thank God for them. He would come to a stoplight. He would let his hands drop from the wheel into his lap. He would lean back. He would smile deliberately, take a big breath, and just relax. He even posted a little card on his dashboard right there that said, Remember, at relaxation breaks, thank God, smile, and relax. Put it right there on his dashboard as a reminder. At first, he frequently found himself slipping into his old pattern, but each time the card reminded him and he would act upon it, and soon relaxation became the rule rather than the exception. In a short time, five weeks, driving became not merely tolerable, but a pleasure, and guess what part he enjoyed the most? The traffic lights. That's right. Now, does that sound like a hard exercise routine? Some of you may be overwhelmed with all the things that need to be changed in your life. Don't be. Don't get bogged down in where to start. Just choose one area and go to work. Some of you may need to read yesterday's handout about worry. Well, should I start with this one or this one? Would this lead better results or that one? No, just choose one and go to work on it. Confess it before God. Commit that area of your life to Him. Create a plan to follow. Be consistent. Be convinced that in Christ you are what? More than conqueror. That was a weak word for you, but... Say that a little more gusto. Let me suggest that the church, the body of Christ, is the best place for us to learn to grow in righteousness. The church is God's gymnasium. And I know churches can be some of the most hurtful places. But it's God's gymnasium in which training is to take place. The work of counseling, building up, training, disciplining its members, discipling its members to maturity, in Christ has been given to the church, not to outside entities. 
I'll put that on the screen in case you think I'm just making that up. Ephesians 4, speaking of Jesus, he gave himself up, or he gave, he himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, for what? Equipping of the who? Saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, that is Christ. You know, it's my desire to see every church turned into a gymnasium where spiritual training takes place every week. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Not just on Sabbath, but during the week. Church members teaming up to be prayer partners, accountability partners, working together in the power of God to develop that spiritual muscle of putting off what needs to be put off and putting on what needs to be put on. And I want to close this week. We've talked about several different things. I want to close this week with one of, well, how do you say a favorite? I mean, there's so many favorite quotes in the spirit of prophecy, but here's one that I want you to chew on. It comes from Testimonies to the Ministers, page 18. And take this personally. The Lord Jesus Christ is making experiments on human hearts through the exhibition of His mercy and abundant grace. Anyone open to be an, exper an experiment for the Lord Jesus Christ? All right. He is affecting transformation so amazing that Satan, with all his triumphant boasting, with all his confederacy of evil united against God and the laws of his government, Satan stands viewing them as fortresses, impregnable to his sophistries and delusions. I mean, that just boggles my mind, doesn't it? That you could stand there in the devil with all his wicked angels around and saying, there's no way to get in there. Impregnable. They are to him an incomprehensible mystery. The angels of God, seraphim and cherubim, the powers commissioned to cooperate with human agencies, look on with astonishment and joy that fallen men, once children of wrath, are, through the training of Christ, developing characters after the divine similitude, to be sons and daughters of God, to act an important part in the occupations and pleasures of heaven. To His church, Christ has given ample facilities that he may receive a large revenue of glory from his redeemed purchased possession. The church, being endowed with the righteousness of Christ, is his depository in which the wealth of his mercy, his love, his grace is to appear in full and final display. The gift of his Holy Spirit, rich, full, and abundant, is to be to his church an encompassing wall of fire, which the powers of hell shall not prevail against. In their untainted purity and spotless perfection. Who? The angels? Do you see your face in that statement? Isn't that incredible? Untainted purity, spotless perfection. Christ looks upon His people as a reward of His suffering, his humiliation, and his love. And it's this next sentence that just brings tears to my eyes. And a supplement of what? 
What's a supplement? Something that's added to what's already there. How much glory does Christ have? And he calls us to be a supplement to his glory? Someone explain that to me. A supplement, an addition to his glory. That just boggles my mind. Christ, the great center from which radiates all glory. Is it worth it, friends? It is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this week. Thank you for the reminders. Oh, Father, please, one request for myself and each of my friends here, that you will not let us leave this campground and go home and continue life as usual. Take us to the gym. Teach us how to work out until, Lord, we can be what we've just read, a supplement to your glory because of your great love. You know us, each one. You know what we struggle with. Father, thank you for the fortification you've given us this week. Teach us how to become experts in using your weapons against the enemy. And when we meet again, may we meet as different people, conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.